0: with the police banging on the door. Open up. The choice to be in that lineup was the last choice I made as a free man.
1: A year later, I ended up right in the system.
0: I'm going to be one of those people who everyone in the world is going to think is a monster or suspect is a monster for the rest of my life, and I'm just going to have to come to peace with that. Somebody was able to look at my picture in a database and say that I was somewhere where I definitely wasn't.
1: I overheard three of the jailers discussing what part they might have to play in my hanging. They had been told that two prison officers would have to participate in my execution. And I walked back inside that prison for the last time, man. All hell broke loose, man.
0: This is wrongful conviction. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. Today's guest is a dear friend of mine and an extraordinary person, Peter Pringle. Peter Pringle was accused of participating in a murder of two police officers following a bank robbery in Ireland. After his conviction, he was sentenced to death by hanging.
1: And the police officer who had lied to get me convicted was now a retired detective superintendent. He had been promoted up to the top.
0: Just days before a noose was to be tied around his neck, Peter learned that Ireland's president had commuted his sentence to 40 years without parole.
1: I could face the 40 years, which wasn't a possibility for me at the time. I could kill myself, which at the time was a reasonable proposition. Peter, what an extraordinary
0: story. So happy to have you here. You're also the first guest on Wrongful Conviction who's not born in America.
1: Thank you. It's, it's an honor to be here. Thank you very much.
0: Yeah, I was just saying it's it's exciting that you're here because, as I said, we, we, we're taking it international now, right? You're as Irish as mm-hmm. Irish can be. So, Peter, let's go back to the... We're, we're talking... This was a very interesting time, right, when things were going sort of crazy in your home country, right? So bring us back to what, what was... Give us the climate and the...
1: What happened was in 1980, there was a bank robbery in Ireland, uh, which the police say was carried out by two men, three men rather, and the getaway car travelling cross-country, small country roads, collided with a police car at a small crossroads. Sounds
0: like a movie. Yeah,
1: yeah. well, and this is now the police version of events because it goes, I wasn't there, and so I really can't give you the, the... I can give you what I think is the accurate event of what happened because of my later investigations. But... There was a. The two cars collided, there was an exchange of gunfire, and two police officers were killed. And the three raiders escaped cross country.
0: The three bank robbers. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And. Where did this happen? In a town called Balhadreen in County Roscommon in Ireland. But at the time, you were far away. I was in a different region, different county altogether. I don't know how (laughs) that would do this. That's That's an important detail. Yeah. So that evening, one man was arrested not too far away, and he had a bullet wound in his chest. And the following morning, a second man was arrested, and the third man escaped cross-country. And two days after the crime, a police officer managed to catch the man they were chasing, actually caught hold of him, and was the only police officer to see the man when the man wasn't wearing a mask. But the man struggled and got away from the police officer and ran away across the fields, stole a car and escaped again. And apparently he passed through the town where I was and got away again from the police and 12 days after the crime they arrested me and brought me in and framed me up for the crime I hadn't committed.
0: Now there was a there's a backstory there too, right? Oh, there was a, a reason. There's, yeah. <laughs> a, there's a they 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 wanted you, right? You you were known to the cops, and they you were a person that they would have liked to pin something on. And this was sort of a convenient yeah. Well, time Robert, I too.
1: was known in the context that I was a political activist. I'd been a political activist from the time I was 16 years of age, and I'd been involved with the IRA, and I had been interned when I was 18 years of age from 1957 to 59. I was imprisoned in a prison camp on the Curragh in Ireland. Without interment internment, it means that you're imprisoned without any charge or trial, on suspicion. So they had this background. They classified me as a subversive. So it was handy for them to get me off the streets. That's the way they saw it. But at the time at the crime happened, I I had a very serious alcohol problem. And I was on a, a binge. I was drinking. I had been drinking with buddies for days and days and days. And then they told me that they thought the police might be looking for me. <laughs> I said, well, for what? So I decided, well, you know, I'd have to do come off the drink and go and go to the police and find out what this is all about. But uh, before that happened, I had come off the drink, but before I could go to them, they found me in a house of a friend and arrested me and took me in.
0: They found you in the house of a friend. So you were on this this binge. Yeah. Knowing you, you're you're someone who's prone to extremes, right? Twelve so
1: days I, I've been drinking. Twelve
0: days know, of yeah. drinking. That's a yeah. uh, well, <laughs> that's a lot of drinking. Yeah. Um, and I imagine this is um, this is not casual drinking. This is some... no. This
1: is this was serious alcoholic drinking. Yes. Right. And and I'd been a fisherman, you see, at sea, which probably saved me because when you go to sea in a trawler, you don't drink. There's no drink in drinking boat. And so I only drank when I, got, when I got ashore, which was a different story. And at the time of my arrest, I was skipper of a boat carrying cargo out to the Arden Islands, which are three islands off the west coast of Ireland at, at Galway, off Galway Bay, inhabited islands. So my job was to carry different cargos on the ship boat out to the islands to land it safely, and bring the boat back safely. That, that's, that was my job at the time.
0: Now, just to give some context, Peter looks like the skipper of a boat. He's very tall and strong and very well-built. I mean, he's got long, flowing hair. You know, for someone like me who grew up in Manhattan, what would I know about skippers of boats, right? We have rowboats in Central Park here. That's about it. But <laughs> yeah. in any case, uh, yes, he, he very much looks the part. So you were. So this was your job at the time. That was
1: my job. And as luck would have it, um, I, I take... I, Took the day off work the day that the robbery happened, and went on a binge, and they used that against me as, as I, I'd taken the day off work to go and commit the robbery. Well, yeah, so was, which hadn't happened. Right. But anyway, when I was arrested, and I was taken to the police station, and there's a funny thing about that too, because after 12 days on the on drinking, you know, I was entering into detox. Because this was the first day I hadn't drank, and when they arrested me and took me into the and in the police car, two detectives each side of me, I had the shivers, and they said I was shivering because of fear, because of uh, guilt. Guilt, right? I was shivering because I was after a binge, but when they got me into the police station, they first thing they did was strip me naked, and a team of detectives walked around inspected my body, which I found to be very weird. Uh, And they all looked very disappointed, and I didn't know why. I later discovered they were disappointed because I didn't have a bullet wound. Because remember, the guy that they arrested that had been shot told them that his friend had also been shot. So they were looking to see, had I a bullet wound? And when I didn't have a bullet wound, they looked very disappointed, but that didn't stop them framing me up. So I was arrested at 3 o'clock on a Saturday afternoon, and at 4 o'clock they commenced interrogations. And I was interrogated from 4 p.m. Saturday afternoon till 4.30 a.m. on Sunday morning. Twelve and a half hours. Yeah. There was a break when I had a visit, two breaks when I had two short visits with my lawyers in the middle, but that was 12 and a half, 12 hours basically. Just you
0: and two detectives in the room or how did that?
1: Me and a team of detectives, they were coming in relays of twos and threes and and interrogating and, you know, with the occasional beating and, and thrown in for good measure because two colleagues had been killed. Right. And and they, they were very, very angry. And so then at 4 a.m. in the morning, I was brought down to an, into a dirty cell and put into a dirty cell. And a police officer was outside with a baton. And it's a solid door. And they closed the door. And then he was outside banging on the metal door with his baton so that I, I couldn't fall asleep. And then at 8 a.m. they took me out of the cell. And at 8.30, recommenced interrogations. And I was interrogated from 8.30 a.m. on Sunday morning right through till 4.30 a.m. on Monday morning. Wow, so that's another 20 hours. Yeah, and during that day, it's very interesting, actually, in the afternoon, that was on the Sunday, the what were known in Ireland as the heavy gang, these were the serious crime squad who were, had a, a terrible reputation, they took over the police station, and they allowed they, they let all the local police go off to a football match or something. And so the only people in the police station with me on Sunday afternoon were the Serious Crime Squad and Special Branch. And um, at one point in the afternoon, I was being interrogated, and I was—they when they beat you, uh, they make sure not to leave marks, so you get kidney punches. They, they—I'd they, be standing while they'd be questioning me, and one would come behind me with his pistol and, you know, whack you in the, in the kidneys, which is very very painful. And are um, they take their boots and rasp them down along my shins, you know, along the shin bone, along the skin to tear the skin? Stuff like that you wouldn't think about. or, or stamp on your toes? These are big, heavy men, you know, and you're you're wearing a pair of canvas shoes that they've given me. Um, and at one point that I I I knew I needed a break. Like this was you know I I knew I was I was getting very tired of this. So I said, I wanted to use the toilet. And they said, you're not going to use the toilet. You're not going to use the toilet, you know. Because they use fierce language, you know. And I waited a little while, and then I said to the inspector who was conducting matters, I said, it's like this now. I said, if you don't let me use the toilet, I said, I'm going to piss on the floor here in this office. And they went berserk. And he said, well, he would too. He would too, the the bee, you know. So with that, they... um, Left the room, and they called in two other detectives, and they left the, the room. And after about ten minutes, uh, they were told they could take me out of the toilet. So the two detectives took me out. I was in front, walked out the door, down a corridor, and turned right along a long corridor. And about halfway down this corridor, there's an alcove to a staircase going, going up, and the uh, the men's room is on the left, nearly opposite that. Alway, that's Alcove, And at the end of the corridor, the door was open out onto the car park on the street. Hmm. And I'm walking now, but you know, you can imagine I'm sort of hypertense because of all that's happening. And um, I'm walking down along the corridor and they had the door open because they wanted me to make a run for it. So they could shoot you. Yeah. And when I got just to this alcove, a detective standing in the alcove that I couldn't see put his foot out to trip me. But I was so hypertense, I saw it, and I lift him, I stepped over his foot, and the detective behind me says, Ah, you won't catch Peter like that. And with that, the guy that had tried to trip me says, I'll fucking catch him, he says, and he cocked a noozy submachine gun. He said, I'll kill the bastard. And I got an unmerciful push in my back, and I was propelled through the door of the men's room, and up against the wall to the side and the detective behind me, who was a special branch detective, shielded my body, put his hands up like that, shielded my body and said into my ears, say nothing, say nothing, say nothing. And he said to his colleague, shut that door. And they shut the door. And there was a big Ferrari going on out in the hallway. The guy with the gun was wanting to get at me. And the next thing I, we heard an authoritative voice saying, what's going on here? And then hand me that weapon. And then to somebody else, take care of that weapon. And he says, you, to my office. And I gather what happened was the superintendent came in and saw what was going on and stopped it. But in the toilet, the detective that was protecting me still covered my back, covered me with his body, which is a very brave thing to do because that other lunatic was going to shoot me. And um, and then when, when everything had quietened down, he says to me, I need to have a pee now too, he says after all that. And so that was it, and I was brought back, and the interrogations continued.
0: I mean, we've heard these stories from people who were wrongfully arrested and subjected to awful interrogations in America, and we don't really know much about the audience here because we haven't covered it in any detail, what goes on overseas. But it sounds every bit as bad as anything that goes on in America. And, of course, we do know that, as you pointed out, when... Police officers are killed. They get crazy. Um, yeah. They 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 get into an irrational state, and they probably do things that they're they wouldn't normally well, do. Normally
1: do that's right. correct. Yeah.
0: And and uh, so you you were subject to. I mean, from I'm just trying to do the math. Like almost forty hours of interrogation thus far, and I'm guessing mm. that there was. Well, we know that you didn't get any sleep. I'm sure you weren't given anything to eat.
1: Well, no, they 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 would. Were... Bring along a cup of tea or something like that, you know, or maybe a sandwich, you know.
0: Right. So they Okay, so at least you had that going for yourself, but, but that which is better than what you would have thought based on the way they're treating you, right? Yeah. But then again, yeah. they, they like to do that, right? They like to pull you in a little bit and then put you back that's out right, and do that whole, right. like, psychological torture thing as but well then, as physical torture.
1: When I was torture. put into the cell then on, on Monday morning, 4.30 a.m. on Monday morning, I was taken out again at 8 o'clock. Right. and I was interrogated then till noon on Monday, and then I was taken under an armed escort of police to Dublin to the and brought before the Special Criminal Court where I was charged with capital murder and robbery. And, and and, I but
0: you never confessed? You'd be- oh,
1: absolutely not. I, I, I should tell you this one. My father was a policeman. Hmm. My father had been a police officer. I didn't know that. Yeah, and... Um, at the time when I was a young man and he he knew of my involvement with the Republican movement and he tried to talk me out of it, of course. And he said to me, um, at one stage, he said to me, Are you, if you're going to stay with these people that you're involved with now, he said, I want to tell you, give you some advice. He says, if you're ever arrested by that crowd. And I said, what crowd? He said, that crowd in the castle, Dublin Castle was the centre for the special branch. And he was referring to a special branch. He said, they deal with political matters. He says, if ever you're arrested, don't answer any questions, he said. Give them your name, address and date of birth and say nothing else. And I said, why that? He says, because no matter what you say, they'll twist it and use it against you. So when I was arrested, and that was my policy, when I, I had been arrested many times before, because if anything happened in the area that I was in, they would do uh, sort of round up the usual suspects. Anything political happened, I mean. And uh, and they'd pull me in, and they'd question me, and I'd say nothing, and they'd release me, and that was the end of it. So I knew about the procedures when I was arrested. But they brought me before the Special Criminal Court, which was established for the trial of political offences, which is a tribunal of three judges, uh, no jury... And there I was charged and remanded in custody to the maximum security prison where I was put. And in truth, when I got to the maximum security prison that evening, on the Monday evening, and I was, that was kind of interesting too because when I was brought into what they call reception in the prison, I was stripped, of course. They strip surgery going into the prison. And there was a senior a chief officer, what they call a chief officer there, jailer. And they handed me prison clothes. I said, "I do not them. They said, you have to put them on, you have to wear prison clothes. I said, no, I'm, I'm a political prisoner, I don't wear prison clothes. And they said, but you have to, that's it. No, I said, I'm not wearing them, I want my own clothes back. And I said, if you don't give me my own clothes, I'll go naked. How did they respond to that? And they said, what? Well, some of them wanted to beat me up again, you see, wanted to beat me up. Uh, and the chief said, no, no, not, don't do that. He said, uh, are you serious? I said, of course I'm serious, I said. I'm a political prisoner, I'm not wearing prison clothes. And he said, give me his fucking clothes. <laughs> so I got my clothes and I was brought into the prison wing where I was, where everybody else was not wearing their own clothes too, because it was a political wing, you see. And I was put into a cell, and I can tell you this much, that when I, to get into that prison cell with a clean bed, even though it's a narrow army type of bed, take off my clothes and get into the bed and sleep, it was such a relief after 48 harrowing hours, and me, I was detoxing during all this time that I was in the police station, and there I was. And then three months later, I was given a copy of the book of evidence, and I saw in the book of evidence where one detective sergeant was claiming that on the Monday morning, that would have been after 34 hours of interrogation, I had supposedly suddenly blurted out these words... I know that you know I was involved, but on the advice of my solicitor, I'm saying nothing, and you'll have to, and you'll have to prove it all the way. I'd never spoken those words because, as I said, all I gave was my name, address, date of birth, and if I wanted to use the toilet, I said I want to use the toilet.
0: So, for 34 hours of them interrogating you and alternately beating you and switching people and yeah. going in and out and depriving you of sleep and everything else, all you gave them was your name, address, and, and date
1: of birth and to say to them, I am innocent of what you're accusing me of.
0: So your dad's advice really stuck with you. Oh, absolutely,
1: because he knew. I mean, he was a police officer.
0: Right, which is an ironic twist to this whole thing, right? The fact that your dad was a police officer, and you end up being accused of killing two police officers, and then tortured by police officers. Yes, that's right. It's very strange. Life is very strange, and your story is particularly insane. Um, So, (laughs) And what an odd thing to just reflect for a second on the fact that you were just expressing how you felt this sense of relief, and you almost sounded joyful at the idea that you were being put into a cell in a maximum-security prison just because you had just been through this
1: unbelievable ordeal. Because I was away from the ordeal, you see. Right. I was safe from it. That's why I could relax.
0: I know, but you got to understand, like for <laughs> anyone else you know, who's in society to hear that, or me right now, to go to think of how that could be, that you could actually feel happy about being an innocent person put into a tiny cell with a hard cot, but then again, it was the best thing you had seen in at least 48, 48 hours, hours. Yeah, That's right. You could get some sleep. Yeah, so, and my
1: mind didn't go to that fact that I was in a maximum security prison or that I was accused wrongly. No, I went to sleep. At that stage, my exhaustion, all I wanted was rest. And then a funny thing happened the following morning. I woke up at 7 o'clock in the following morning. The the cell I was in was on the ground floor. And I woke up the following morning at 7 o'clock to hear a voice outside the cell, in, in the prison yard outside the cell, Screaming. Jesus, help me! Help me! Help me! Oh, Jesus Christ, help me! And I could hear the scream, and I thought, oh, my God, what's going on here? Because I didn't know. I thought maybe some prisoner was being battered or something. And then I heard other voices saying, come on, come on, come on. You have to cut cut that down. Come on. And there was a whole skermuzzel going on outside in the prison yard. And I didn't know what it was. And I thought, really, I'm in a right hellhole here. This is, this is a prisoner being battered, you know. It was only afterwards when the cell door opened I heard that actually it was a prison officer had, had a nervous breakdown <laughs> in the yard. And, um, and they were trying to take him away.
0: Hmm. That was your first morning. That uh, was
1: my first morning experience in the maximum security prison. What yeah. was the name of the prison? Port Leisha Prison. It was in the Midlands.
0: Port Prison. So, yeah, so, oh, yeah. Well, welcome to Port Leisha, uh, yeah. which it is was known.
1: It's known colloquially as the bog. The bog. Yeah.
0: In the fall of 2008, a sleepy Seattle suburb was shocked by a crime that no one could have expected. A local football star planned a daring bank robbery complete with decoys, disguises, and an outlandish getaway plan. He drew the whole thing up, just like a game-winning play on the field, and almost got away with it. The Sneak follows a twisting story of a once-great athlete who committed that crime and how the robbery forever changed the small town where it occurred. Be sure to subscribe to The Sneak on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. Is there something that is interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? If so, then BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are specialists in issues including depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, trauma, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. And remember, anything you share is confidential. Now you can get help on your own schedule, at your own pace, and your own time. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions and chat, text with your therapist. If you're not happy with your counselor also, remember this, you can request a new one at any time at no additional charge. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. And for Wrongful Conviction listeners, you can get 10% off your first month with discount code WRONGFUL. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com WRONGFUL. That's betterhelp.com slash wrongful. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor that you'll love. Betterhelp.com slash wrongful. So... At this point, had you already been sentenced? No, no, just accused. I'm 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 on remand. they've, They've
1: thrown you into this prison while you await your trial. That's right. And I was thrown, there was no such thing as putting me in with other people on remand. I was put in with people that had already been convicted. It was a political wing. So the way it worked there, in one way, it was a, tough place to be
0: so let's go forward to the trial and the conviction because there's so much more to your story so the trial takes how long does it take to get to the trial
1: okay well three months after i was arrested i got a copy of the book of evidence and when i read the book of evidence i saw where a detective sergeant was claiming that after 34 hours of interrogation i had suddenly blurted out these words that did i say them already right. i know yeah. you know yeah which i never said And the first time I came across these words was when I read the book of evidence. And that was the principal evidence against me.
0: Your your so-called
1: confession. My so-called oral confession. So when we went to trial, now the two other people had been arrested. The three of us were tried together, right? So the trial took 23 court days over six weeks. And for the first 12 days of the trial, my name wasn't even mentioned apart from the fact the charges were read out to me. After that, my name wasn't mentioned for 12 days. So I'm sitting in the dock. It's surreal, as if I'm, I'm one of the audience, because they're talking about stuff about these other guys and nothing about me. And then after 12 days, they went to my case. And when my case was then opened, they opened the case against me. The police officer who had captured the guy they were chasing whom they claimed was me, went into the witness box and he was asked, did he see the man again? And he said, yes, he's in the court, and can you point him out? And he said, yes, I'm sitting in the dock. So he pointed to a man in the public gallery, standing in the public gallery, and he says, that's him standing up there. And it was really bizarre because all the, the, the public gallery in the court was packed, but all the people standing beside this man moved away from him and somehow found space, and he was left standing like this on his own, like something you'd see in the movies, you know? And, and the whole courtroom started laughing. It, it, it seemed so funny. But I was convicted. They never stopped that man. They never arrested him. They allowed him to leave the court. Is it your belief that that was actually the guy? Oh, well, he, the police officer who had caught him and spoke to him said that was actually the guy. And, and he had the... And he knew I was in the dock. He knew I was the accused. And it's, it's interesting and, and, and bizarre, although we've seen this
0: before, that the actual killer would come to the courtroom to yeah. watch the proceedings, right? Apparently
1: that, he did, yeah.
0: That is a phenomenon that happens. It's a weird... And,
1: and, and so he was allowed to leave the court. And I was convicted on the evidence of the detective sergeant that had spoken those words I told you about that I never said. Right. And no. that was the evidence upon which I was convicted and sentenced to death.
0: Did your attorney bring up the fact that the other defendant had said uh, that you had, no, the, that the other guy had been No, he But what shot? he said
1: to me afterwards, what he, uh, that evening, he said to me... Now, now I should explain the, the situation in the special criminal court. Uh, not like in America. I was, the accused is not allowed to sit beside his lawyers. Huh. Yeah? Okay. So you have the, 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 the tribunal, the registrar, the solicitors the barristers, the journalists, and then behind, on a raised, slightly elevated, the dock. I'm sitting in the dock. So I am about, I suppose I'm about the equivalent of about six rows of seats behind my lawyers. And they're facing the opposite direction from me. They're facing the court, as I am, so I can only see their backs. And I can't consult with them. And the only time I can consult with them is when the trial that day is over. So, when I raised the matter with my lawyers at the time, they told me, Oh, well, you can't be convicted now. As the detective has said the police officer has made that identification, there's no way you can be convicted. And I thought, OK, I knew nothing about the law at the time.
0: Well, it seems logical, though. It the does, police of officer course, gets it, understand it and says, Yeah, the guy's here. There he there is. He is. Yeah, and you're going, right. OK. Yeah,
1: good. And, but the thing about it is, if that had happened in the north of Ireland, if my lawyers had been any good, they would have asked for a mistrial straight away, they would ask for a dismissal. Straight away, but they didn't. And actually, my senior counsel, who didn't even turn around to look at this man and didn't even turn around to look where the police officer pointed to, he said to the police officer, so you've identified the defendant as the man? And the police officer said yes. And then the prosecution counsel stood up and he said, in fairness to the accused, my lords, he said, I have to point out, he said, that this witness was shown a photograph of the accused Before the trial. And they're not allowed to do that. You see? So then that meant that uh, his evidence was disallowed.
0: Oh, so his evidence of having pointed out the actual killer, who we believe was the actual killer, was disallowed because of that, but not your false confession. Were you able to testify in your defense?
1: No. My lawyer said they had no evidence against me and that if I went into the witness box it would mitigate against me and that the state would pull me, pull me apart. And I wasn't afraid to go into the witness box. In fact, I wanted to go into the witness box. But my lawyers misdirected me and said, no, it's, there's no evidence against you, so there's no need for you to go into the witness box. So,
0: again, another common factor that we see, well, a couple of common factors that we see in these wrongful convictions. You're a victim of police misconduct, prosecutorial misconduct, and incompetent defence. Yeah, uh, attorneys. And ultimately, you're convicted and sentenced to death. Yeah. Let's talk about that moment. And then let's move forward to the craziness that happens on the eve of your execution, right? Yeah, but,
1: well, when the case was over, when the prosecution case and the defense case was finished, the court reserved judgment to the following day. And we were brought back to the prison um, to be brought up the following day to hear their judgment when we were convicted. And so... So you cor- had
0: been convicted, but not sentenced.
1: No, I hadn't been convicted.
0: Oh, oh, so you had to go you had to go back, back to the prison, prison to and sit there decision and wonder of the
1: court as to whether they were going to convict or not.
0: That's a long night.
1: And it was it was pretty clear that they were going to convict the other two guys, because th- there was evidence against them. But there was no the only evidence against me was this the, the word of this police officer which I had disputed. And plus the fact that the other police officer had identified the actual culprit, who was not me. So when we went up the following day anyway, they convicted me and they sentenced me to death. And the sentence went like this, the, the presiding member of the court said, you shall be taken from this court to the place in which you were last held. And this was now on the 27th of November, 1980. And on the 19th day of November, in the year of our Lord, 1980, you shall be made to suffer death by execution in the manner prescribed by law. And then, and you're also sentenced to 15 years imprisonment for the robbery. My inner response at the time was, this is crazy. If I'm going to be executed in three weeks' time, I can't serve the 15 years. And if I'm going to serve the 15 years, I can't be executed in three weeks' time. that was the way my head was around this whole thing. And then I was taken down underneath the courtroom to the cells. I was put in the cell and then my lawyers came down to see me in this alcove that was there... And I was brought out to the alcove to meet with my lawyers, but the senior lawyer hadn't yet come. And when he came in a few moments later and he came up to me, he was weeping, he was crying. He was in tears. And I found myself in this bizarre situation that I was standing up with my arm around, his name is Seamus Egan, the, 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 the lawyer. My arm was around him and I was saying, it's okay, it's okay, don't worry, we, should we have an appeal, don't worry. And he's crying his eyes out. And I'm thinking to myself, this is weird. It's backwards. This is backwards. This, this is about face, yeah. He should be consoling me, and I, you know, whereas I'm consoling him. And, um, and so I was brought back to the prison. Now, when I was brought back to the prison, now I'm a sentenced, a condemned prisoner, right? So I'm put in a death cell. And at first, actually, they didn't put me in a death cell. They put me in, a, in an isolation area, and they put me in an ordinary cell in an isolation area with two jailers in the cell with me. And that night there was no sleep because these guys were sitting, reading papers, rustling, talking, you know, and I couldn't get to sleep. Until eventually during the night I sat up and I said to them, and I said, now listen here to me, you guys. The chief has told me that in this situation that I'm in, I can have whatever jailers I want with me. And unless you pair be totally quiet, I'm going to ask for you every night. And they went, oh, Jesus, don't do that. And they were as quiet as lambs, and I got through the night. But then the following morning... Well, that was morning, a very
0: good reverse psychology there. <laughs>
1: yeah. yeah. Well, it's
0: almost—it's sort of like an act of rebellion, I guess, in a certain way. I, and also I just am sort a of, bit
1: rebellious. And, right? and, a, and
0: an element of controlling your own situation, which is completely out of your control. Mm-hmm.
1: Right. Yeah. And then I protested the following day, and they put us into a... They created what they called the death cell, which was a larger cell. And the three condemned prisoners were put in there, and I had bed down at the, end of the wall.
0: You and the other two, the yeah. actual bank robbers.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Construed. Who
0: you 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 didn't know until that point, right?
1: No, well, I knew one of them previously, because I, I knew him from drinking. Okay. But otherwise, I didn't know them. And of course, it's often asked to me, why didn't they say you weren't with them? And the fact of the matter is, each of them were conducting a defence of not guilty. They were pleading not guilty. And if they were, had said that I wasn't with them, that would prove that they were guilty, and the charge carried a mandatory death sentence.
0: Right, so they had nothing to lose. They, they weren't been, going to. They, 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 they were it.
1: just trying to save their own necks. Right, and I understood that. But anyway, in that condemned cell, that was we went in. I was in there on the twenty seventh of November, and about a week before Christmas of that year, in nineteen eighty, the way the rule was, the condemned prisoner wasn't allowed to speak to any other prisoners. And the jailers were told not to speak to a condemned prisoner for their own protection. Because if a jailer, like a prison guard, gets to like a condemned prisoner or have respect for a condemned prisoner, it will be very difficult for them to participate in cold-bloodedly taking that person's life, which is logically true. But on this particular occasion, about a week before Christmas, I overheard three of the jailers discussing what part they might have to play in my hanging. Now, they were sitting as close as I am to you, Jason – And they were discussing this as if I wasn't there, as if I wasn't a human being. They had been told that two prison officers would have to participate in my execution. And they were very concerned to know what bonus they would receive for doing this job, because, of course, it was outside of their normal work, and what role they would have to play. And the role they would have to play, they said, was that when my body would go down to the trapdoor of the gallows, there would be two prison officers underneath and each one would have to pull on one of my legs to make sure my neck was broken.
0: You know, I'm almost never at a loss for words, but I don't even know what to say about that. um, That's a whole nother... Well,
1: I didn't know what to say about it either, but I was already angry over what they had done to me, but this made me enraged. But in a funny kind of way, in a bizarre kind of way, it helped me because it forced me to face the reality straight in front of me. That I was likely to be hanged. How old were you at the time? 41. And facing that reality, to my surprise, I discovered that I wasn't afraid to die. Hmm. But what I was afraid of was that I might not be able to die with dignity. I was terribly afraid that they might succeed in taking away my human dignity. And I determined I wouldn't allow them to do that. Now, they had imprisoned me physically. But they couldn't imprison my mind or my heart or my spirit. And so I determined that it was within those realms of myself I would exist while I was in that situation. And that's what I did.
0: in the mind, the heart, and the spirit. Yeah. And so you came within 11 days of being
1: executed. That's correct. But well, before that, my, my lawyers made an application for leave to appeal, which put a stay on the execution. But then the appeal court refused my application for leave to appeal. So I got no appeal. And they set a new date for my execution, which was the 8th of June 1981. And about two weeks after the new date was set, my lawyers came on to visit me in the prison. And they wanted me to allow them to put in a plea for clemency on my behalf. And I refused. I said, no way. And the senior counsel, the guy who'd been crying after the trial, he was in tears again, you know, very emotional man. And um, he said, but they might hang you, Peter. Well, I said, if they do, it wouldn't be the first innocent person they've hanged. But I will not plea for clemency for something I didn't do. And I actually asked for a piece of paper and I wrote, gave them written instructions to that effect because I was afraid they would actually go and do it anyway. Oh, yes. The reason they said this was that government cabinet had met and discussed whether I would be executed or not. And couldn't come to an agreement about it, and they were concerned that the following week the cabinet was going to meet again, and the cabinet might decide to um, execute me. So they went away very upset, and I went back to my cell. And uh, the following week, when the cabinet met, I later learned that the prime minister, before any discussion would happen, said, "We're not we're not executing Pringle. It would be political suicide." And then they instructed the president to commute the sentence. And the president commuted sentence from death to 40 years, penal servitude without any possibility of parole or or remission. And I was put out into the general prison population where I could talk to people and I could exercise in the yard.
0: So it's almost like a... uh... I mean, better than being executed, I guess, but not by a whole lot, because essentially it's a death sentence. You're 41 years old, you've got 40 years in prison, you're going to die in prison, right? That's right. But that's not what happened.
1: No, because at the time, I, I, I knew I had three options, you know? I could face the 40 years, which wasn't a possibility for me at the time. I could kill myself, which at the time was a reasonable proposition, not let them... Refused to allow them to put me in, keep me for forty years, but then I realised if I did that, they'd say I had done it out of guilt Oops. and remorse. Yeah. So I couldn't allow that. So I determined I was going to try and prove my innocence.
0: And ultimately, you did. Yeah. Fifteen years later. So let's let's walk through that because I want to get to the the next phase of your life, which is so
1: extraordinary. Well, I should also tell you that there was no law library in the prison. So how did you go about proving your innocence? I had a friend who worked in the university outside and she had access to the law library in the university and I arranged with her to photocopy sections of law books and find out which were the best criminal law books and constitutional law books and photocopy sections of them.
0: You had plenty of time to study, well, that's I, for sure. then I couldn't
1: study. You see, I left school when I was 13 years of age and I'd worked all my life and I had no formal education and my anger was such that I just couldn't read the, the documents.
0: Understandable.
1: So I determined I had to try and learn how to relax so I got a friend to leave me in a little book on yoga with illustrations of the postures and I began to teach myself yoga in the cell on my own and teach myself meditation and as I mastered those two disciplines my anger got less and I was able to study and I spent my time studying and then what happened was other guys in the prison would come to me with their documents with their cases and ask me would I look at their cases And um, I said, yeah, sure, and I would, because it was helping them, it was also helping me. And so that's what I did most of my time in the jail, in the prison. I, I studied law as best I could. And eventually, in January of 1992, I opened my own case on my own behalf in the High Court in Dublin under the Irish Constitution. Now, I had no money, I had no lawyers, so I had to prepare the case myself, file it myself, and conduct the case myself, so that, which meant that they had to take me under armed escort of military and police up to the court where I represented myself against the top lawyers of the state. And the case ran from January 1992 until May of 1995 when my conviction was overturned. But in July of 1992 I won an order for discovery in the High Court, and that, that that's another I tell you, there's, there's reams to this story that... Uh, and it's kind of important to say this one to you. One of the cars used in the crime had been stolen in Galway on the 2nd of July. The crime happened on the 7th. It was stolen on the 2nd of July between 11pm and 11.45pm from the from the car park of a hotel, right? And the evidence of the stealing of that car was allowed into the trial because the court ruled that the stealing of the car formed part of the res gestae of the offence, which meant that the person who stole the car had done the killing. Right? Okay. But on the day that the car was stolen, at the time the car was stolen, I was delivering four thousand concrete blocks on the Arden Islands, with fifty or more witnesses there. Now, I delivered the concrete block about five years after I had been. I was imprisoned. I got a letter from my former boss, the guy who owned a little company that owned a boat that I was skippering, asking me if I'd been paid for the delivery and for the blocks to the value of £600, which I didn't know anything about because that wasn't my role. My role was simply to be the skipper to take the cargo out. And bring, I didn't even know what, the, what it cost. I wrote back and told him that. And he said, no, we believe you. We understand that. But he said, the man that you delivered to has refused to pay his bill. And five years later, when they threatened court action to get the money, he told them that he had paid me the money. Because I'm in prison, you see. I'm in prison doing 40 years for murder, capital murder and armed robbery, so he was going to blame me. So I wrote him out a letter saying that, of course, I'd never done it. And when the case came for court, the man never appeared in court, and the court ruled against him and accepted my account, and the matter was finished. But I went into the book of evidence, and I saw that my boss... Supposedly, had made a statement in the book of evidence saying, "I sailed at eleven o'clock in the morning and came back at eleven o'clock that night," which would have meant I had the possibility of stealing the car. Okay, whereas I sailed at four o'clock in the afternoon and didn't get back to Galway till two a.m. the following morning. Now I knew he had a computer, and I knew as a chartered accountant he kept all records. So I wrote to him and I said, "Have you a record of the sailing on that day?" And he said he had. You sailed at four o'clock in the afternoon and you got back at two a.m. in the morning. So I wrote to him again. I said, well, then tell me this. Why did you make this statement, this false statement? What did he say? I never made a statement. Oh, they made it up. They made it up. In order to protect
0: your conviction.
1: To try and get me convicted. He never made a statement, and he was never even asked to make a statement. Wow. And so later when I got a lot more discovery, I discovered there were actually 23 prosecution witnesses in the case had never made any statements, although there were statements in the book of evidence attributed to them. And had he, he told me that if he had been asked to make a statement, he would have told the truth. And had he been asked to make a statement and told the truth, I couldn't have been convicted. So I asked him, would he make an affidavit? Would he swear an affidavit to that? And I drafted an affidavit, sent it out to him. He got it notarized and swore it and sent it back in to me. So when I appeared in the court, in the high court, and looked for an order for discovery, and the lawyers for the state were saying, ah, he's only fishing, he hasn't got anything. I said, yes, I have, and I produced two copies of this affidavit I said I have here the sworn affidavit of a prosecution witness stating clearly that he not only did he not make the statement attributed to him but he was never even asked to make a statement and I offered it to the court and the judge wouldn't accept it and I offered it to the the state lawyers and they wouldn't accept it because of course if they would accepted it they would have had to deal with it but wouldn't the judge want to deal with it You would think. no 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 don't forget he wasn't being I mean he was looking at me as if I was a piece of dirt
0: Anyone who knows me knows I wear glasses all the time. It's like a part of my face. And the thing is, it's so annoying going to a store and trying glasses on and going through that whole process. Warby Parker has solved the problem. I just participated in the home try on program, and here's what happened. They sent me the glasses. I tried them on in my office, five different pairs. I showed them to my friends. I, you know, looking at other people, what do you think? This, that, the other thing. I look in the mirror. I picked the one that suited me the best, and then I sent back the other four. And here's the thing. The glasses, you're not going to believe this. They start at $95, including prescription lenses. I mean, that's a small fraction of what I'm used to paying. And the lenses include anti-glare and anti-scratch coatings, which is super important to me for obvious reasons. Anyway, the free home try-on program works like this. You order five pairs of glasses. And you try them on absolutely free for five days. You can show anyone. And then there's no obligation to buy. The shipping is free. It includes a prepaid return shipping label. So head to warbyparker.com slash conviction to take the quiz that comes before and then order your free home try on. And now... Introducing Scout by Warby Parker. And Scout is for you people, for everyone that wears contact lenses. And here's the thing. They're comfortable, they're breathable, and they're affordable. They're daily contact lenses. They're made from a super moist material that resists drying for lasting hydration and comfort. It's everything you want from a contact lens. Order a trial pack that includes six days worth of contacts for only $5. Unreal. And then receive $5 off your next Warby Parker order. Learn more. Go to warbyparker.com slash conviction. That's warbyparker.com slash conviction.
1: Try it today. So what happened then? So I won my order for Discovery. And then when I got my order for Discovery, didn't I get a photocopy of the notebook of the detective who had claimed I'd spoken those words in a particular period of interrogation? And he had sworn this on oath and that he had recorded the interrogation and recorded these words. And when I got his notebook, I saw in the notebook, it's very clear, he wrote the words in before the period of interrogation in which he claimed I said them.
0: Yeah, that's tricky.
1: Right. They, they, just, they had nothing against me, and they decided this was what they were going to do.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a very organized and very insidious, oh, uh, very coordinated, I mean, the, the lengths that they went to to, to to get the conviction, to protect the conviction, to to basically run roughshod over the truth are extraordinary.
1: they still at it, mean. by the way, which I'll tell you about as we get on through this. But in January of 1994... A human rights lawyer offered me his help and I took it. We got a legal team, we went to the Court of Criminal Appeal under new legislation and the case ran from 1994 to 1995. And the police officer who had lied to get me convicted was now a retired detective superintendent. He had been promoted up to the top. By the way, the cops who lied in the trial were all promoted and the cop who saved my life and who refused to lie in the trial was never promoted.
0: Why am I not surprised? I mean, this is such <laughs> yeah. a web of, of deceit, you know, deceit and, yeah, absolutely. and lies and bad actors and everything else. So your conviction's thrown out, you're, you're freed, right? Mm. And then you told me a great story about your first day on the outside, or your first, mm. th- what was the first thing you did when you got oh, out?
1: God. Um, well, when I was released I was out of the special criminal court out on the street, I was met with a a plethora of media people with microphones and cameras and all stuck in my face, throwing questions at me. And I didn't have time to sort of realize that I was free, if you know what I mean. I didn't have time to let it sink in. And then I was taken by my lawyer to the T V station, the National T V station, where I was we were interviewed for the news that evening. And then my friends organized a party. A bunch of people had had set up a defence committee for me outside and they took a floor of a pub and organised a big party and there was a huge big party going on and we went to that and that went on all that evening and everybody got drunk except me. I wasn't drinking. And um, I stayed with two friends that night in their house and the following morning when I got up, uh, I was the first one up, I went down to the kitchen and... I went out to the back garden, which was a lovely long back garden and the sun was shining. It was a beautiful day. There were no big walls around me. There was flowers and trees and bushes and I walked down the garden and at the bottom of the garden there was a big old apple tree. A really big old gnarled, you know the way they become gnarled apple tree. And I could hear in the distance the sound the background noises of the city. But I went to this tree and I stood with the tree and I realised that in all the time I'd been in jail and all the time the trouble I had gone through this tree was growing in this garden on its own with nature producing its fruit and shedding its leaves every year, year in, year out doing its own thing and immune from the corruption, the greed the rat race the injustices and everything else and I put my arms around the trunk of the tree and I wept And I released. And that's when I knew for for certain I was free. That was in May 1995.
0: So that's 21 years ago. And then another extraordinary thing happened in your life, right? Yeah. Which is something I'm very well aware of. Well, Something or someone, I should say, right?
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, three years after I got out, and it was difficult times for a while after I got out because it's very difficult to fit into society again when you're locked up. But I had yoga and meditation and I used that and a little bit of prayer. And three years after, one day I got a phone call uh, from an American lady who told me her name was Sonny Jacobs. And she told me she was speaking at a meeting three days later where I was and invited me to come and hear her talk. And I said, what are you going to talk about? And she said, the debt penalty. And I said, yes, I'm interested in that. I'll come along. And I brought two friends and I went along. And it was a, a room above a pub, of course, at one o'clock on a Friday I went up to the room, there was nobody there and after a few minutes the door opened at the far side of the room and this little woman walked in and I walked over to her and I said, uh, you must be Sonny Jacobs. And she looked up at me with a big smile and, and that's how we met. <laughs> and I listened to her story and I was hugely emotionally upset by listening to it and I knew I had to talk with her and I said to her, I need to talk with you and she said, got to be good, I need to talk with you too. And um, but she said, "I'm leaving in an hour." This was on a Friday. I said, "Where are you going?" She says, "I have to go to Cork for the annual general meeting of Amnesty International, Irish section of Amnesty International. I should be there at eight o'clock tomorrow evening." I said, "Stay over with me." I said, "And I guarantee I'll get you down there." And so she how, went how far away was Cork? F- four uh, four hours drive. Right. And she um, went to Mary Lawler, who was the general secretary of Amnesty at the time and asked Mary because, of course, she was unsure about whether she should go with a stranger <laughs> in a strange country. And uh, Mary knew me and knew my story and she said, Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you, Peter. Yeah, yeah, great. So we transferred Sunday's case from her car into my old and she stayed in my house that night. And the following morning we went to my friend on the cafe in Galway. We went to his place for breakfast. He asked us to come for breakfast. And he said to me, um, are you driving her down to Cork? And I said, yeah. He said, you can't go drive Sonny to Cork and that jalopy. He said, here. And he reached his hand in his pocket and he gave me the keys of his Mercedes. He said, just get it back to me tomorrow morning. So we, I drove Sonny down to Cork in the Mercedes. We travelled in style. And as we were on the car ferry crossing the River Shannon, eating a packed lunch which he'd made up for us, she said to me, what's your interest in all of this? And I told her that I, too, had been wrongly convicted and sentenced to death. And she said, you seem to have got through very well. She said, "And how did you get through so easy, so well? And I said, uh, yoga and meditation.
0: First of all, by the way, this is a hell of a first date. i got to give it up to you. For a guy who had been <laughs> in prison for 15 years, you got game, okay? And so, so that yeah, it's extraordinary, as I, I keep using that word, because I don't know what else, other word to use, uh, the fact that Sonny, of course, had also been sentenced to death for a similar crime that yeah. happened... A continent away, five, 6,000 miles from where you were charged and convicted. She was charged and convicted. Both of you were actually and absolutely innocent. And you served similar amounts of time in prison. She actually a little bit longer than you. Yeah. And um, both of you had more in common than that, right? That's right. You both were, uh, were committed to a lifestyle of meditation and yoga. You were vegetarians, right? Yes. Yeah, so it's sort time, of the yeah. universe organizing itself in a way that is... Uh, it
1: was inevitable that we should come together, if you think about serendipity,
0: it. serendipity, it's synchronicity, yeah, whatever yeah. you want to call metaphysics. So then you drive her there.
1: We drive her there and... Uh, to Cork. To Cork. Now, Amnesty had got us two rooms in a hotel across from the hotel where the convention was. And each of us lay on a bed separately. And for three and a half hours, we discussed forgiveness. Well, wow. That was the key. Forgiveness. And then I brought her back to her room and she said to me, would I call her when I, as I leave at six in the morning? Would I call her in the morning? I said yes. So on the morning I knocked on her door and she got up and we said goodbye to each other and we'd keep in touch. And I had a, got, got my friend's card and drove back to, to Galway. I, did did you
0: guys kiss or was there any physical interaction? Did Hold hands? No. no.
1: Exactly what happened was he said a, to a me,
0: perfect gentleman.
1: Yeah. Well, <laughs> he
0: said to me, "I don't want you to think I'm not attracted to you, but I'm in a kind of a relationship, and I like to try to live an honorable life, and that's what clicked in my mind because at that point in my life, I had no time for BS." You know? And so that impressed me. How long had you been out of prison by this time? I was out three years. So almost, yeah. Oh, I was out
1: three years. You were out... Oh, he eight. was out three.
0: Years. Right. So you'd been out six and he'd been out yes. three. Okay, fine. Six. That's not the so most important So we joke form.
1: and say, you see, that she's five years older than me. Right. Okay, got it. Five years out before me. Exactly. Right. And anyway, okay, so but then... That was what happened. And then we hadn't made any arrangement. But when he got home, he called me. And that's when I knew that it had clicked for him too.
0: So then you ultimately were married, yeah, um, yeah. which is uh, well, my, my favorite part of the story, actually. <laughs> <you know?
1: laughs> well, what we actually did was, about 10 years ago, we decided that uh, we were going to exchange vows for each other, and we bought two claddagh rings, and on the winter solstice, this is the shortest day of the year, because Sonny said we should do it on the shortest day of the year because we don't want to have a long engagement. We're too old. We gave rings to each other in the morning, And we were engaged till the evening and we went down to the seashore with our dogs and we exchanged vows on the seashore in the evening time. And the sun and the moon were both in the sky at the same time, which we thought was very auspicious. And then what happened, we were having some difficulty when we'd leave the country coming back because we were given Sonny hassle about whether she could come back into the country or not. And this was because she was with me, you see. So we decided we were going to get married. But getting married in Ireland is much more bureaucratically difficult than it is in America. And we we found out that, that you could apply in New York and get a license and get married the next day. So, But we had no money to come to New York. So now at that stage, by the way, I was we were existing on my state pension, which is like very small. So the theater that had put on the exonerated, the film, called contacted us. They were doing a, a producer's weekend and they wanted us to come and speak at two dinners that they were hosting. And Sonny said to them, oh, we wanted to go to New York to get married. And they said, you're going to get married in New York. We'll host a wedding. So they hosted a wedding. They brought us to New York and they they put us up in a hotel and they hosted the wedding so there were about 120 or 130 people at the wedding. We only knew six or seven of them. <laughs> None of our family were there. It was so funny. It was hilarious. Brooke Shields, Amy Irving, Marla Thomas, and Stockard Channing were at the wedding. They were four people, uh, actresses, who had played Sonny. In the
0: play The Exonerated. In the For those play of The listening, It was an extraordinary uh, play. Uh, yeah. And Sonny's story is one of six that are profiled in this uh, remarkable play in which so many incredible actresses have portrayed you, that's right. um, and so they showed up at the wedding. So you have this sort of celebrity wedding, which yeah. adds a certain and, element of strangeness to the whole thing. And right? the
1: best part of it was that when Sonny was asked, uh, do you take this man to be your lawfully wedded husband, the four actresses stepped forward and said with Sonny, "We do." Hilarious! That's amazing! <laughs> you know oh my God! It was All the so studies. funny. You so know? you may actually be married to five
0: women at this point. <laughs> it's hard to say. Um, and I'm I'm not judging you. I'm just saying yeah, it's something I know, you may want to have right? somebody look I, into. I it was so funny. Um, yeah. So the there's a wonderful uh, announcement. If you Google Peter Pringle and Sonny Jacobs' wedding, my belief, I can't prove this, is that you're the only two death row exonerees who have ever been married right. uh, after exoneration. Know, after
1: exon- um, yeah.
0: because there are very few women who have been uh, uh, sentenced to death and even many fewer who have been exonerated. That's so true. you yes. really, you really hit the jackpot. And so I do want to put in a, a plug because now Sonny and Peter operate a phenomenal organization called the Sunny Sanctuary, mm-hmm. and it is sort of a haven or whatever you want to call it where they bring newly exonerated people over to the coast of Ireland and help them reintegrate, right? This is probably the best word, yes. and, and get their get their lives back and get their their spirits back, so to speak,
1: right? Yeah, it's kind of healing from the inside out. Mm. We help them to release the anger and bitterness that they carry over what was done to them
0: and and paint a picture of the sunny sanctuary for people out there who can't really visualize.
1: okay, well, there's we a- we, managed, we managed to rent a, a three-bedroom house on 14 acres on the side of a hill overlooking a lake, and there's, there's hazel woods down to the lake. And each bedroom is, is ensuite, so they have to, every person who comes has their own bathroom and toilet. And it's on the coast.: miles. It's four miles. four miles from the sea, but it's, it's only just bit above the lake. and it's in a very it's at the end of the road. The nearest store is six miles away.
0: There's more than a few animals there, right? Oh, yes,
1: we have... Let us see now. We have three cats and four dogs, four hens and five goats.
0: And, and a partridge in a pear tree. <laughs> something like that. I,
1: I jokingly call it the menagerie. Sometimes we milk the goats, and Sunny processes the milk, and Sunny makes wonderful goat's cheese, three different types of goat's cheese. So we also have a, what they call a polytunnel, which is a, the equivalent of a greenhouse where we grow our own vegetables, so when people come to us, we feed them on organic food and organic free-range eggs, and they have milk and cheese, homemade goat's cheese, organic goat's cheese. And do you teach them meditation, yoga? Yes, yes. Like that? We share with them. We don't conduct therapies as such, but what we, what happens is that when they come at first, they will tell us what has happened to them. They release the things they need to release and then we can share with them how we dealt with the issues that are causing them problems and open the way for them to the realisation that actually they're more than just an exoneree, they're not just a person who's been in prison, they're more than that. The fact that they were wrongfully in prison is just an episode in their life and it's an episode they can put behind them. Now it always travels with them but they don't have to live in the past and they have an opportunity of realizing themselves as full human beings. And we bring them out and socialize with our friends, and we go to events and, and to the theater, and so they, they uh, get a chance to mingle with people as, as ordinary people. It's so inspiring
0: to me and to many of us who work in the innocence movement that a very large percentage of exonerees are driven to help others who have gone through a similar ordeal and so, it's uh, I think the most powerful thing I've witnessed, and I was asked this question yesterday, is the coming together of exonerees mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. the sharing of the experiences and the healing that comes from that, yes. uh, and from being with others who are the only people alive who can possibly begin to understand. That's right. What you've been through, even though every situation is unique and every story is unique, but still the experience is more similar than not. And it's so wonderfully inspiring to hear the stories, both of your stories, and the fact that they're now one. (laughs) And and, uh, and what you've done and how you've turned this unimaginable set of circumstances into such a force for positivity and, and change and good is something that I think everyone who's listening and and so many others are going to be affected by. And and it's inspiring me and and so many others to want to do more and help more, or as many as we possibly can, I should say. Before we have to wrap this up, if any of you are listening now and haven't heard the Sonny Jacobs episode, I strongly encourage everyone to check out the Sonny Jacobs episode. But before we sign off, Peter, are there any last words that you'd like to share with the audience?
1: Learn not to carry anger. Anger is a natural, natural phenomenon. We get angry, I get angry, everybody gets angry, but don't hold it. Don't hold it. Don't hate. Because hate consumes the hater. And anger consumes the angry person. It doesn't consume the person you're angry against. And it it, it damage your health. Let it go and try and be in the spirit of forgiveness. Because that's where your real strength is. Our real strength is in the fact that we decided we would move towards healing and forgiveness and let go of all those negative emotions.
0: And I wish everyone the best. You've been listening to Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom, today's guest, Peter Pringle, and today's guest of a guest, Sonny Jacobs, the one and only. Thank you both for being here and sharing this incredible story. Thank you, Jason. Don't forget to give us a fantastic review wherever you get your podcast. It really helps. And you know, I'm a proud donor to The Innocence Project, and I really hope you'll join me in supporting this very important cause and in so doing, helping to prevent future wrongful convictions. It's easy. Go to innocenceproject.org to learn how to donate and get involved. I want to thank our amazing producers, engineers, and editors, Connor Hall and Kevin Wardus. The music in the show is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction and on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast. Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company No. 1 and PRX. I'm excited to tell you about a new serialized podcast called American Jihadi. If you're into investigative journalism, if you're a news junkie, or if you love great nonfiction storytelling, it's a must listen. American Jihadi tells the incredible true story of the unbelievable relationship between journalist Christoph Putzel and Omar Hamami. Throughout the eight-episode series, Kristoff recounts his investigation into the life of Omar, an American-born U.S. citizen who became leader of the Somali Islamist militant group Al-Shabaab, landing him on the list of the FBI's most wanted terrorists. From Omar's hometown in Alabama to war-torn Somalia, Kristoff seeks to get answers. Why would a Southern Baptist turn to terrorism? And how close should a journalist get to his source? Listen to American Jihadi. Out now on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen.